Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. Good afternoon, everyone. We are talking today with Brandon Monroe. Hello, Brandon. How are you? Look, I'm really well. Thanks, Matt. It's obviously a big day in, in uranium today with uh, a big announcement coming out of Kazakhstan. And I've got to tell you, I, as you know, I'm really passionate about helping people through the journey of understanding uranium. It's a sector that's pretty opaque at times and it's pretty involved. And these are the big days that as a uranium company CEO, you really just look forward to waking up to. Well, and we're going to we're going to find out why in a second. But I think you're right. The, the uranium space, you know, we've been involved for the last year. There've been lots of catalyst moments come and gone, but the last week or so has been a bit more meaningful, a bit more special in terms of what uh, it could mean. So, why don't you talk us through today's announcement by Kazatomprom? Because I think that took the market by a little bit of surprise. I think it did. So Kazatomprom, as your listeners would know, the world's largest uranium producer. Kazatomprom, including its joint ventures, is responsible for about 40% of the world's uranium production. So if you think Saudi Arabia is influential when it comes to oil, Kazatomprom are the boys in town when it comes to uranium. They've announced today that as a result of COVID-19 measures, they will be reducing down to minimum possible operations all of their Kazakh uranium mines. And as I say, that's both the ones that they operate fully in their own right and the ones that they operate on behalf of joint ventures. It's for three months and they estimate the impact at 4,000 tonnes of uranium, which if you're thinking in million pounds, that's a 10.4 million pounds of uranium oxide, U308. So to put that in a little bit more context, world primary production of uranium is 135 million pounds. So it's a big chunk, but it's a particularly big chunk when you consider that the world's largest single uranium mine, Cigar Lake in Canada, was put on to, uh, was stopped for a minimum four-week period by Cameco last week. And we've also seen two very large uranium mines in Namibia, which is the world's fourth largest uranium producer, being subject to supply disruptions as they've had to taper back their own production because of shutdowns in Namibia. So big news in its own right, but it's also big news in terms of the cumulative effect that we're now starting to see with COVID-19 interfering and disrupting uranium production. Well, let's, let's, let's talk about that. Let's, let's, let's put some context around that, because if we start building out some numbers, the cumulative impact is huge based on the um, delays that we've been told about. So three months, maybe. Four weeks, maybe. And if it does go on longer than that, the, the numbers really start to build up, don't they? Well, they do. They do. And you've got the question of what's going to be different for Kazan and Prom in three months' time, what's going to be different in Saskatchewan in northern Canada in four weeks' time. Exactly. What's going to be different in Namibia in uh, the balance of the 21 days' time? Well, let's just talk about this. So, sorry, I, I, sorry, I sh- should step in here because I, I kind of made a made an assumption there that, um, that 
as I shouldn't have. So can you just um, summarise for us what you think the impact is in Namibia? Because it's not a closure per se, but it's a disruption, which, again, may add up to a, 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 a uh, disruption in terms of production. So what sort of numbers are we talking about there? Very hard to put numbers on it. We do know that the Husab uranium mine, which has been operated by the Chinese nuclear giant CGN, it's been subjected to a number of unrelated supply disruptions, and they've struggled to achieve nameplate capacity in any case. Uh, now, the majority of that production is sucked straight into China because it's a vertically integrated mine. Uh, so we don't have particularly good handle on their production. Uh, but to put the entire Namibian context, which is both HUSAB and the Rossing uranium mine that CNNC recently bought from Rio Tinto, those two mines in 2018 had an identical production to Cigar Lake, about 14 million pounds. So the disruption in Namibia, it's not a shutdown. They've been requested by the government to operate at a minimum staff level. And where I think that's going to is that at the end of the 21 days, the Chamber of Mines in Namibia will seek permission from the Namibian government to continue operating its mines at a commercially and financially viable level. Very important for Namibia that their mining industry does have the chance to come out of this. So I'm not expecting a long-term shutdown in Namibia of those two mines. But any effect of this and any actions like this, they do shave a, a fair proportion of production efficiencies off. So I don't see either of those mines coming close to reaching guidance for 2020. Right. So if we add up all of those numbers, the, the deficit grows considerably. I mean, what, what, what have, you, have you managed to put a number on it? Yeah, well, we discussed last week, you and I, that I was working off a £20 million potential deficit. And the article that we discussed, I'd, I'd called 10 to £20 million pounds, uh, reduction in forecast 2020 global uranium production. Now, that uh, 10 to £20 million pounds is looking a little bit conservative after today's announcement. You've got £10 million pounds in Kazatomprom alone. And as we just discussed, there's uh, risk to the increase rather than the decrease there. So if it goes longer than three months, you'll see more of that. Um, my view on the shutdown of Cigar Lake is that I, I just can't see anything changing in four weeks. And to put that in perspective, let's say that that dragged on for four months. Well, that's going to take another six million pounds out of the system. Um, you add a few million pounds for Namibia. And then even if we don't see dramatic shutdowns at other big mines like Olympic Dam, the fact of the matter is in mines all over the world in every commodity at the moment, there's numerous different disruptions and operational issues and uh, efficiency issues that are just shaving their production numbers. So I'd be very, very surprised if we don't see a 5 to 10% reduction in production amongst the mines that are able to continue operating throughout this entire period. And you add that up and you very easily get to 20 million pounds. That's that's a big number. 
That that is well, it, way bigger than anyone thought at the end of last year, when you know, even the most optimistic and the, the most dedicated uranium bulls weren't talking those sorts of numbers. This is a big impact, and this could be one of the very few industries, certainly sort of commodities, to benefit potentially from this. I mean, do you, or is it a case of do you think the Kazakhs will just play catch up in the end of you know, at the end of their um, this period? Will they be able to go back in? Because they they're they're kind of restricting their output in a way, aren't they? Or have been recently. Um, is that a possibility? They'll just play catch up, in which case it'll it'll sort of be fine. I mean, I know we've got a kind of big bigger macro problem with regards to deficit, but um, what will the Kazakhs do to to react, or will they actually see this as an opportunity to put the prices up too, or drive the prices up? So. We- <laughs> So you're right. So your listeners would know that Kazatomprom has reduced its production profile across all of its different assets by 20%. And if we go back for a moment, the reason why they've chosen that number is, according to the mining law in Kazakhstan, a subsoil use contract, which in you know, Canada or in Australia would be called a mining con- uh, a mining license, under a subsoil use contract such as they have you can operate at 20% below or 20% above the production guidance that you've given the government in that contract. If you go below that 20%, you basically need to renegotiate unless it's an emergency, as we see here. So Kazatomprom have really skirted the very outside of that corridor of production that they've got. And... It's my belief that if they had the capacity to go lower without uh, dealing with government, they would quite happily do so. So then to answer your question, Matt, why would they want to then start filling in a market when they're finally going to see the type of catalyst that is going to increase spot prices and create a more buoyant market for them? It's difficult to see a motivation for them to try and dampen a an upward price momentum that will only benefit them. So to answer your question, I don't think they will. Uh, they might try and recover some of their lost production by the end of the year, but they've got a lot of inventory as well, which is not an ideal situation for them. They've got about 8,500 tonnes of uranium inventory. So this production disruption will halve that and it's probably going to be a little bit low for them for where they want to be, that inventory level. Um, big producers like Cameco and Kazatomprom like to stay at about seven or eight months of annual production as an inventory number. But it puts them going into 2021 with the reduced inventory level, it really puts them in an ideal commanding position in a tightened market, which is something they've been looking for for at least the last few years since they've started their market-placing supply discipline approach. So, no, I don't think they'll be desperate to try and recover that. They'll be focused on trying to get back to steady-state production when as soon as they can. Makes sense, makes sense. If you're a utility buyer, your phone must be ringing off the hook at the moment, I would have thought. Or are they going to be in a in a dark room trying to work out what it what it all means, just like the rest of us, and work out how they're going to change their behaviour? Would you be changing your behaviour if you're a utility buyer? 
Well, I would. Yeah, clearly. And utility buyers do come in various shapes and sizes. Some utility buyers will be quite protected from the from reasonable inventory positions. Some will already be realising they're a little bit exposed and that they had already started to think about topping up. And they're the utility buyers that would be feeling rather nervous right now. And they will, the penny will start to drop with them that, you know what, we've got no idea to what extent these supply disruptions will continue and expand. But what we do know is all of those nuclear power plants, uh, give or take a couple of percent, going to keep burning their fuel rods at exactly the same rate. Nuclear power demand will not receive any substantive dent as a result of uh, COVID-19 in all, all but the most extreme scenarios. Mm. So they'll continue to burn the fuel, they'll continue to generate demand, and by now, I think as they start to digest this news, they'll start to realise that there's no outer limit to what this supply disruption could possibly be. And I'm not putting a probability on it. I'm not putting a big number on the likelihood of it. But this thing could go out of control. And they're going to need to be absolutely confident that they have enough risk mitigation in place to withstand those sort of scenarios, which are at the very least quite possible. But out of control, you were talking about the fact that this thing could go run and run. And... The, the ability for miners to mine uh, is restrict, heavily restricted or, or just stopped in some cases. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. And um, uh, it doesn't need to be the entire industry that goes down. But, uh, you know, if that 20 or 30 million pounds for this year carries on into the beginning of next year, that is an enormous effect on a market that was already in deficit and it's about the risk that that three months will go to four, five, six months. That uh, the Cigar Lake four-week shutdown will go to 12 weeks, 16 weeks, 18 weeks. Uh, no one in the world is qualified to tell you that that just simply won't happen. We don't know that. And uh, three weeks ago, no one dreamed that Kazakh production would go down for an entire quarter, possibly longer. Okay, so, sounds like it's, um, it's a case of the price will be driven up by this. Next question, I guess, which all of these lovely retail listeners are going to want to know is, do you think this is going to drive the spot price up, which, which most people look at? And I know it's also about term but um, term contracts, but what do you think it's going to do to the spot price? We saw a little move last week with, some, with that news. Um, do you think it's going to do much today? tomorrow, this week, this month? I think it will. I think it will. And uh, anyone who heard our interview, however many days it was, everything's yeah. moving in slow motion at the moment, but it, it couldn't have been more than a week ago, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I was quite reticent to say that, this, that the spot price would go up and things would change dramatically. I, I really believed it was a an effect that was going to work its way through over the course of the year. Um, I'm starting to think more um, really differently about it after these events. Um, so a couple of things to help you understand 
or your listeners understand where I'm coming from. The first thing is Kazad and Prom have been very disciplined about not selling into the spot market. So the fact that they're going to work down inventory won't make a big difference in itself to the spot market. It might create a little bit more concern that we've talked about, but it's not like pounds that last week were being sold into spot will suddenly be withheld from spot. So that's not where the action is with Kazan and Prom. They will work down their inventory and probably by the time they've got the mine up and running again, the mines up and running again, whenever that is, then they'll reassess, they'll work out how much inventory they've got, where they're left, and they'll go from there. And there's no question that they've got enough inventory cover to continue delivering, in, delivering into their obligations with customers. Okay. Where the game is at now is with Cameco because Cameco has their Inkai joint venture in uh, Kazakhstan and MacArthur River is on long-term care and maintenance. Cigar Lake is now down and their only other form of production is the Inkai joint venture. Uh, Cameco have got a broad range of contracts that they are, of course, committed to delivering into. And until three weeks ago, they only had to buy for contracts that were related to their MacArthur River production. Now they've got to buy for both MacArthur River and Cigar Lake and their proportion of Inkai when they can't secure pounds from their joint venture partner. So what we knew about Cameco's buying habits or buying requirements last year was they took a bit from everywhere. They bought a little bit in spot. They bought a little bit from their joint venture partner in Kazakhstan. They bought a bit off market. They went back to a few utilities to try and shake out a little bit of loose inventory. And between all of those different sources of supply, they did manage to accumulate enough pounds to sell into their long-term contracts, even though MacArthur River, which was producing 18 million pounds per annum, was on care and maintenance. Their options now have just contracted by an order of magnitude. They can't access or it will be very difficult for them to access those pounds from Kazadamprom now that Kazadamprom will be short. Uh, there's the Arano uranium loan that's now being thrown in the air because, uh, because Istagar Lake is down and the um, Kazakh production that Arano have got at Katko is now um, down for the next three months. And the loose material that they might have been able to find off market, who's going to sell them that? Who's going to sell them that when there's every chance that we'll see day-on-day -day increases in the spot price of 5 10 15 20%? So they, Cameco is going to now need to drive this through the spot market, probably at a time when utilities, traders, and others will now be competing pretty hard in the spot market, as we started to see over the last few days. And what's interesting is that's not necessarily a problem for Cameco, because they've still got um, market-related clauses that constitute about 60% of the value of their contract portfolio. So even if they need to get in there in the spot market and fight hard for those pounds, at least the 60% of the value of their contract portfolio goes up with every dollar that the spot price increases.
that's but that's going to be the key driving factor here. That's 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 interesting. So, who are the beneficiaries of this announcement? Uh, so that's interesting because uh, most of the world's producers are under duress at the moment. Mm-hmm. So you work through the the list of the world's producers. The ones that aren't under duress are the ones that couldn't care, which is Rio and BHP. Um, Uranium One has now lost its very cheapest form of uranium through their Kazakh joint ventures, so they'll be nervous. So the beneficiaries now are near-term developers and advanced projects who can produce producible pounds into the next round, who conceivably, if this market continues under duress and it really continues to flourish from here and and all of the things that we're imagining or perhaps hoping will happen in the uranium price, if they then carry forward and take place, it's going to be the companies that are able to bring projects into this next round, those with producible pounds who've got DFS in place, who've got environmental improvements in place, who've got a jurisdiction that they can operate in, a political environment that they can operate in. Um, Early stage explorers, sure, everyone's going to get a lift if the uranium price kicks off the way that I would expect it to. But okay. the real focus will be on those companies. Those, those near-term producers with DFS, et cetera. So, so, what, so what's that time frame? So it, they can get into production within, what, three years, two years? What's the number? Uh, it's going to depend a little bit on their scale. Um, there's very few pounds that can come into the market on a two-year basis in any case. Mm-hmm. And the contracting cycle, let's say that it starts up by the end of the year, typically long-term contracts only require delivery from three years out. So it's companies that can get into production in the next three to four years, I would say. Okay. So there's the there's the obvious producers. There's a couple in the US we've spoken to recently. I guess they're going to be smiling or at least hoping um, that things continue the way they are. Um, and then you've got... I think you'd probably throw, throw your hat in the ring, I suspect, um, with companies who perhaps could get into some kind of um, state of readiness for production quite quickly, um, assuming finance. Well, I assume the institutions will start getting interested now. The generalists will start getting interested now because if the market does become less opaque and becomes um, a little bit more uh, open, um, certainly around the price discovery, you're going you're gonna to have money available to certainly a vast number of the companies that we've talked to over the last year who perhaps have been struggling a bit. So it will be, it'll be interesting. And then, of course, what I'm really interested in, and I think the audience is interested in, in terms of the public equities side of things, you know, who, who is going to be able to take advantage of this? Who's going to be able to, you know, pick up on conversations with funders? We're waiting for this kind of this kind of movement. So, um, I, I, I guess that in the next the next week will also be feel like an eternity as well. Um, what price do you think? Like in your experience, as a, I want you to talk rather than your uranium expert hat on here, if you can talk as a CEO, what price do you think the spot market needs to get to um, for the sort of generalist funds to start paying attention again? It definitely needs to clear $30. Right. 
So it looks like today we'll hit a 12-month high in uranium, just following what's happening in North America as we record this podcast. Mm -hmm. um, but a 12-month 12 12-month 12 uh, high, sure, that's all nice and good. It indicates an up an uptrend, but uranium's been really quite volatile, and it hasn't managed to penetrate $30 a pound since. Uh, March 2016. So that for me is still a barrier for investors to come in. Um, it's shown resistance at that level. $30 a pound starts to push out uh, a whole bunch of different dynamics in the sector that have virtuous cycles. So for example, um, at $30 a pound, it really breaks through some of the carry trade numbers that we've seen that have suppressed uranium sentiment. Um, but I think at a more basic level, if we're talking about generalist investors, they need to be hang able to hang their hat on something that says, now it's different. Now we've got clear evidence that it's different. And through all of these events, MacArthur River shutting down the first time, MacArthur River going on to permanent care and maintenance, Kazakh supply disruption, et cetera, we haven't penetrated that number. So that, for me, is the, the level at which we'll start to see a renewed form of interest in the sector and interest coming in from new players at a time when commodities are right up in the air. So as you said before, Matt, uh, you know, uranium is an outstanding candidate for uh, storing and growing value amongst all of the market chaos that we're seeing at the moment. You know, I very much think that uranium and gold are the, the two yellow metals and they should be looked together. What a beautiful analogy. I like, I, sorry, I like that description. <laughs> the, two, the two yellow metals uh, should be looked at indeed. Well, um, Brandon, thank you so much for giving us your thoughts on you know, what's going on out there and what impact of the Kazakh announcement will mean. Um, I suspect we should talk next week as well because I think a lot more is going to happen um, soon because this COVID-19 thing, thing is not going away. I think the markets are in a fairly volatile state and um, you know, with the, clo with the closures that we've seen so far, you know, do you feel that, actually before I go, do you think there will be others to follow suit? You are yeah, probably at the margins. Uh, I get asked a lot about Olympic Dam in South Australia. Mm. Um, I think it's unlikely that we'll see a full disruption there. We are seeing them struggle with things like fly and fly out worker disruptions, uh, potential disruptions of reagents and that type of thing. But uh, from where I'm sitting at the moment, I think it's unlikely that we will see a disruption at Olympic Dam or, for that matter, a substantive um, disruption at Ranger. Um, Australia seems to have really flattened the curve, both Western Australia and South Australia, uh, where the uh, Olympic Dam is located. Northern Territory seems to be very sparsely populated, so they're okay. So I, I think we can calm down about that. But I'd very easily trim 5 or 8% off their 2020 production just because it's going to be a hassle and it's going to be difficult operating and maintaining production guidance through all of the challenges that they're facing this year. Yeah, and that ends up being a big number. It, it, it was a huge number, yeah, absolutely. And I, and, and I think I had that validated this morning. I was talking to a couple of uh, 
uh, Aussie miners, uh, gold miners in the same area. Um, they said, really, it, it genuinely is a case of business as usual for them, and they're, they're gold producers rather than explorers. So um, it, it does suggest the Aussies have got the measure of this at the moment, and long may that continue. Well, look, Brandon, I, I better let you go, sir. Um, let's talk next week, and uh, hopefully there's um, some more exciting news to talk about then. Thank you, and thanks for the chance to get the message out there. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and, of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.